how fitting, right? So, so Brian asked me a few weeks ago, he said, Ryan, would you be interested in sharing? And I've known Brian for about 20 years. I worked for him. And, and so I kind of felt like I could waffle on Brian because I've known him. Sorry, Brian, but I kind of felt like I could. So I didn't do it. This week I'm driving down the road and life is free. And, and uh, I get this phone call. It said unknown caller. And I never, I rarely ever answer unknown callers. And so I answered the phone for some reason. And uh, it was Paul Flato. <laughs> hi, Paul. How you doing? He said, hi, Ryan. We kind of had chit-chat a little bit. And anyway, he's, he asked me to share. I can't turn down Paul. <laughs> so we'll jump into it. Fear and anxiety. So I'm not really talking about fear and anxiety where you're just a little bit scared or you're a little anxious in life. I'm talking about fear and anxiety in your life that, that halts you. It brings you to a screaming halt. It paralyzes you. And it keeps you from even doing your, your daily work, your daily um, tasks at hand. That's the type of thing that I'm talking about here. I'm a little hesitant to even bring it up because I don't want you guys to think that I'm a, a scaredy cat, full of anxiety. That's not a manly thing. I don't want the women going to the women's group and telling my wife, honey, your husband. You know. <laughs> but, but you know what? It's real. We're all, uh, we're all human, and we all have our things. So maybe somebody can benefit from this. If not, please just listen while I talk with myself. <laughs> so my tendency is to go to uh, a dictionary and find a, find a, uh, a definition for, for what I'm thinking about sometimes. And So I went to Merriam-Webster. I think it's a fairly safe source. And looked up fear. So the first definition is an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. Anxious concern, reason for alarm. These are all good things. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a time for, for fear. It keeps us safe sometimes. But I'm not thinking about that type of fear, I guess. And there's a profound reverence and awe towards God. That'll come in later here, but I'm not talking about that right now either. So I was thinking maybe some synonyms. Maybe, maybe if I brought in some synonyms, I don't just walk up to you and just say, I'm, I'm fear. I'm fear today. I'm fear. No. I, uh, alarm, anxiety, dread, fright, horror, panic. Does anybody panic ever? Probably not. Nobody ever panics. Scare, terror, trepidation, fret. None of us fret, do we? We don't fret over anything. Fuss, stew, stress, sweat, trouble, worry. There's some sweat going on. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't mean to make this about me today, I guess. I, I honestly, but it kind of is, and so... You're... Anyway, let's move on. Anxiety. So an apprehensive uneasiness and nervous, usually over an impending or anticipated ill or doom. So I think about in the medical world, impending doom. If somebody has impending doom, it's not a good thing. I don't know if anybody knows, but I, I practice EMT occasionally. And um, so if a patient has impending doom, anybody that's a medic or anything in here, I think could probably back me up on this unless I'm way off the left field. If your patient's feeling impending doom, you probably ought to pay attention to them, figure out what's going on. They know what's going on. 
Of course, there's always those that just feel impending doom anyway, but. So the second definition I really like is an abnormal or overwhelming sense of apprehension and fear with marked physical signs such as tension, sweating, increased pulse rate, by doubt concerning reality of na- uh, and nature of the threat, and by self-doubt about one's capacity to cope with it. So how often in life do we, we're, we're anxious because we're not sure we can deal with whatever's on our mind, whatever's tripping us up right then. By the way, worship team, I hope you brought your, snicker, or your sneakers today because you may need to run up here if this all fails here. So. But let's get more into, into this. So what are some things that, I was trying to write a little list here of, of maybe some things that, that cause fear and anxiety in a, in a Christian's life or maybe even a not-Christian's life. But death, is anybody scared of death? COVID, I think we can all agree that COVID brought quite a bit of fear and anxiety in the world. Cancer or our health, I think we're human if, if we got that or if we think we're going to get that, we got some fear and anxiety. Maybe our finances and money. Is anybody worried about money out there today, whether you're going to pay the next bill? Your retirement, you've got a lot of directions with that. What am I going to do? Is it going to be enough? Is it going to work? How's it going to happen? Identity theft. A lot of identity theft today. Am I scared that somebody's going to take my identity and mess it all up and I'm going to have to go through all the whole program of rebuilding? My job will last. My parents, my kids, my new business. I know there's a young man out here starting a new business. Is it going to work? Maybe you're thinking that. My promotion, my kids, my parents, my marriage. Will I get a boyfriend or a girlfriend? We've had some successes recently out here. I think Mitch, Mitch maybe had some success with that. My salvation. Do I ever get anxious about my salvation? I have. Am I forgiven? Is God even real? Some big things with some people. And what are people going to think of me? Another big thing. I think there's a lot of things we do in life, at least myself, that I operate in a way of what people are going to think of me. I try to formulate what I'm going to do on what people are going to think of me. Sometimes I even wonder, who am I? Because I spend so much time doing what I think people will like. So, a little personal journey. Maybe somebody can sympathize. I don't know. Maybe this will touch someone, let you know you're not alone. So I'm going to say my personal journey kind of started when I was a kid. I remember three specific incidents as a young man, really young man. I'm going to say Maxwell's age, maybe. And there were three things that, that, that plagued me. So one of them was tornadoes. I lived in the Midwest. I lived in Tornado Alley growing up. And I prayed every night. And I don't know, I wasn't saved at that age, I don't think, but I prayed every night that we wouldn't have a tornado and take out our house. 
And you know what? I was probably still praying that we wouldn't have tornadoes when we were having blizzards in February, right? I mean, I, mean, I was praying that this thing wasn't, this wouldn't happen. Another thing was that I was praying that I wasn't, I, I, it, it really bothered me that, that I was going to die. So I had a, a great-grandmother, I believe. It was a great-grandmother. And for some reason, one of her symptoms when she was dying is, is her toes started turning blue. So see where I'm going with a kid, and your toes turning blue, and, and it worked its way up her body, and she probably had congestive heart failure. I don't know what she had for sure. Help me out, medics, if you know what it was, or doctors in here. But, but she had something going on. Her toes were turning blue, and, and she eventually passed away. So as a four, five, six, seven-year-old, I don't remember how old I was, I spent a lot of time walking around looking at my toes, <laughs> and are they turning blue? And I was pretty sure they were. I remember I was sitting in the, living, in, the, uh, in the kitchen one time, my mom's fixing dinner, and I'm sitting there on the floor, and I'm looking at my toes, and they're blue. I don't know why, they were blue. I was, I was dying. And I was asking my mom, and I was pleading with her, am I dying? I'm a kid. I mean, really? But it was a deal. Robbers. Kids, can any of you, does anybody worry about a robber breaking into your house at night? I mean, it all started, I was told there was a family in Ohio that we knew that went to our church, and it was summertime, and they had all their fans on, and, and their windows were open, and a robber came in in the middle of the night, and they didn't even know it until the next morning. They woke up. Mercy, close the windows, shut the fans off. I mean, I was worried, right? So, go a little bit of a, I had a little bit of a reprieve. I don't remember much as a, as a, as a teenager, and, but I got into my 20s. And it came back big time. I'm going to say it started. Some of us are irresponsible young people. And we do things we regret we've done. And it came back with the fear of the forgiveness of my sin. I could not get my arms around it. I could not get my arms around grace and forgiveness for that one sin. I would go to a pastor, and I would sit in his office. Janet knows who he is really well, happens to be her father. And he prayed with me over and over for the forgiveness of sin. My wife told me I couldn't cry. She goes, you have to weep. Men don't cry. So you know what? By the grace of God, I found, I found forgiveness. But I think the devil realized that he kind of had something he could trip me up with. And for the last 15 to 20 years, he's found wonderful little lies to put into my life to trip me up. I remember one time I was in a stackyard. I, used to, I drove truck, and then I was in an office, and I'm back to driving truck again, but I was in a stackyard, one of Brian's stackyards, and I was so overwhelmed that I ended up down in the dirt, pleading to the Lord, and I don't mean that to build me up. What I mean is maybe somebody can sympathize. Maybe somebody's there right now. 
And I was pleading to the Lord that he'd relieve this from me. I'll follow up a little bit later if I don't forget that we can pray for certain things, but there's already promises in place that we have. We don't need to necessarily plead that God will give it. It's already there. Another instance, I was in the office. I couldn't function anymore. I was frozen. I was paralyzed. I closed the computer down, and I went home. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. So go back around to the list, the list of things that maybe plague you, the list of things that plague me. I'm sure I didn't hit the one that you're thinking about this morning, and I'm sorry for that. But believe me, I got a pocket full of them if you need some more of them. So I got to thinking that we are men and women of mechanisms. We want to deal with these things in a way that's not always what God said, but we build mechanisms. We build these things all around, these issues and these fears and these anxieties in a way, in an effort to humanly deal with them. So I couldn't think of mechanisms necessarily for all these things, but there's definitely a couple of them that stick out. So I would just challenge you, you should think about how you're dealing with your fear and your anxiety today. Am I dealing with it with a mechanism? My mechanism, or am I dealing with it the way God asked us to? So COVID, mechanisms, masks, vaccines, social distancing, rules, regulations, we're dealing with it with a mechanism. Finances and money, we work harder and harder and harder, and maybe we're not at home very much. Our children suffer. It's a mechanism. Identity theft, maybe we buy more insurance programs. I just learned about a new one last couple weeks. There's a guy that stole house, uh, home uh, property titles. He's in jail, but he stole like 250 of them. Very successful. Buy our insurance, right? We'll save you from that. Will I get a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Maybe I just power forward. I just ask out the next girl or I really nice to the next boy I see and, and, and I, I'm not even sure what God wants, but, but I'm desperate, right? I'm fearful I'm not gonna get married. I put in a mechanism. My salvation works, works. More things. Do this, do this to be saved. At least I'd feel saved, right? What do people think of me? I talked about that already, what I do. Always trying to impress people. We build a mechanism, right? So I want to go to where, you know, if we stopped right there, it'd be pretty bleak. There wouldn't be any hope, right? That's where a lot of people are at. But praise the Lord. We have the word of God. So I'm going to read a few verses here. Before I do that, there's a little, I forget what it's called. Help me out, you that are super smart. What's it called when you take a word and you line all the letters up and then you put, there you go. So fear, false evidences appearing real. How many things do we worry about that never actually come to pass? A lot of them. Fear's a liar. I know that's a song. 
but it is. It's a liar. So what's the opposite of fear? I wrote down some things, and then I realized what I was writing down was the fruits of the Spirit. So if you go to Galatians 5, and 23, and you read about the fruits of the Spirit, if you have fear and anxiety and your life is filled with that, you probably don't have too many of the fruits of the Spirit. It robs your love. It robs your joy. It robs your peace. Matter of fact, we can just turn there so that I catch them. By the way, I'm sorry, I... I kind of grew up on King James, and so bear with me. You're going to have King James this morning. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You know, you know what the fruits of the Spirit are. But when I'm anxious and I am fearful, I'm not very long-suffering. I'm short. I snap. My kids do something that isn't that bad. And I snap at him. My wife asks a question about my day. Why don't you already know that? I snap at her. Gentleness, goodness, faith. If you have fear and anxiety, you probably, there's not a lot of faith there. So that was a kind of a profound, profound thought to me that if I'm full of fear and anxiety, I don't have a lot of the fruits of the Spirit working right then. So really quick, I don't even know what my time is. Brian, am I way over? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to jump straight to the end. It's what I called solutions and promises. So 2 Timothy 1.7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and a sound mind. Powerful. 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. Put on the full armor of God. You may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor. You may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Above all, taking on the shield faith where you may be able to quench the fiery darts the helmet of salvation the sword of the spirit 
I'm, I'm running way behind, so I'm just going to stop. But one last point that I want to share is just what I mentioned before, and if you don't take anything else away, take God's promises and realize they have been given already to us. It's okay to plead with God to give you something, but get up off the ground and realize that they're already there. God bless you all. I do have a song, if you'll allow me, that I'd like to play. Pray while they're coming up. Dear Lord Jesus, we just lift up your name. We just want this worship time to, to glorify you. We lift our hearts to you and remember it's all about service and praise to you. So we just bless this service and bless this worship in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming up here and sharing your heart because everybody can identify with that. So we could close and go home and we would have had what we call church because God is here, his presence is here. We can feel it. But I'm looking forward to being done with Judges and so we are going to do the last chapter of Judges and then we'll move to something different. Judges chapter 21 is where we're at. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. This is where it came from, right here. I thought about playing a clip, but I'm not going to. Judges chapter 21 says, Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel, that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? And they said, What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out their 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children, and this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead and that yet yet they had not found enough for them. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? 
And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn an oath, saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, In fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. Lebanon. Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh. Then go to the land of Benjamin. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say to them, Be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath." And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that concludes the book of Judges. But to go back over just a little bit of what is going on. Remember, they had just wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. In the previous chapter, we talked about last week, and there were 600 men of Benjamin that went to the Rock of Ramon to hide. And those were the only ones that were not killed in this battle. So now there's 600 men, and the, the rest of the tribe of Israel, the rest of the people of Israel start to be concerned or grieve that one of their tribes is not going to exist anymore. Whether they really cared or whether they just wanted it to sound good because there were still 12 tribes of Israel, I don't really know. It doesn't really make that much difference. But they find themselves in a predicament because they have made an oath that none of our daughters will be allowed to marry anybody from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I'm not sure exactly why it mattered to keep this one because it didn't really seem that big on keeping vows that they had made up to this point. It isn't really like they were closely following along with what God said up to this point, but now all of a sudden we can't give any of them our wives because we made that vow. And it's just interesting to me. I want to go to Matthew chapter 5 and read a few verses there. I think I've read these before when we were going through Judges, but in, in making vows, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by the heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth. <clears throat> There, For it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And they're making a vow here as, you know, it's not like when we make a vow, it's not like we can control what's happening. It's not like we can tell God what we want him to do. It's not like we can make the hair on our head grow. This is alluding to this in this verse. It just says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Now, the tribe of uh, the, the rest of the people of Israel have told 
and made this vow that they're not going to allow their daughters. Okay, so if they make the vow, they need to stick with it. Again, it's interesting to me why they picked this one to stick with and not anything else that they've been working through. So they starting, so here's what they started to do, and this is <clears throat> one of my main points for this morning. <clears throat> they started to look for loopholes in their vow. And we talk about loopholes in a lot of different ways. When you're trying to do your taxes at the end of the year, there's lots of loopholes. Legal, they're perfectly legal, that you can write things off or you can call this an expense. There's different ways that you can do it and different uh, careers have different loopholes. But they're trying to find a loophole in their vow. And I, I couldn't help myself but think, do we try to find loopholes in how we live our lives? Because Christ set the example for us to live. And sometimes if we don't quite like what that looks like, maybe we try to find a little loophole of how we wouldn't have to do certain things or we might have to do certain things. Do we look for loopholes in how we live our life? Do we look for excuses to not have to do something or justify something that we want to do. So the tribe of Israel, the rest of Israel, is looking for some kind of a loophole in this vow. Well, let's think. When we met at Mizpah, who was there somebody that wasn't there? Because when we did that and we made that vow, we also said that whoever didn't come, we were going to kill them. Well, I don't know, I'm not sure how long before this was, but... All of a sudden, now they're going to go back. Well, hey, this is another thing that we said, that we were going to kill them if they didn't show up. So who wasn't there? Oh, we found somebody that wasn't there. And who was it? It was the people of Jabesh Gilead. They weren't there. So the rest of the children of Israel take up an army, and they go to this city, and they wipe them all out, just because they didn't show up to this one place at Mizpah. Now, it does say in the beginning of chapter 21 <clears throat> that the people came to the house of God and they remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and they're concerned about Benjamin not you know, having any wives so they can continue the tribe. And they, were, they built an altar and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then it kind of seems like it stops. What they were trying to do, they were, it, it appears as though they were seeking God's counsel in what they were doing, but right the next verse then, it kind of seems like it stops because the next words say, who is it? What can we find? What loophole can we find that we can get these people from Benjamin, these 600 men of Benjamin, some wives? It says, after they built these, uh, sacrificed these offerings, the children of Israel said, who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? So all of a sudden, they are trying to do things on their own again. They're trying to, I, Ryan, I really appreciate your analogy of me mechanizing things because this is what they're starting to do again. We need a loophole. We need something that we can just do that will take care of our problem that we have here. We don't want to have to consider that we may have wiped out this entire tribe, not without good reason, but we may have just wiped them all out. So we're going to go to Jabesh Gilead and wipe out all of the people there, all the men, women, and children. The only people they saved were the young ladies that weren't married, essentially. 
and they saved them all, and there was 400. Now, I don't know about you, but 600 and 400 are not the same number, and that means there's still 200 men of Benjamin that don't have wives. Well, I would say that's a pretty good step in the right direction. If that's what you're concerned about is the tribe of Benjamin not surviving, you have accomplished a pretty good feat here, whether it was the right way. Did the people of Jabesh Gilead deserve to die because of that? I don't know that they necessarily did. But again, the people were looking for this loophole so they could fulfill what they thought needed to happen here, not really asking, God, do you want us to go and wipe them out? We heard this a little bit this morning, but do I decide what I would like to do first and then ask God if it's the right thing to do? You ever done that before? You got made up in your mind what you want to do, and then we think, oh, uh, <clears throat> to be proper or correct, I probably should ask God what he thinks. And that's backwards. I'm not saying that I don't do it because I do it a lot. I make up my mind what I want to do, and then I ask God what he thinks because not that I really want to hear what God thinks because I already have my mind made up. But this is kind of what's going on here. They're not even really asking God what he thinks. They've kind of got their mind made up. This is what we're going to do. Do you think they really felt sorry for the tribe of Benjamin? Or were they more concerned about what it meant for them as a whole? One of their tribe was, tribes was gone, or would potentially be gone. <clears throat> so they wipe out those people of Jabesh Gilead, take their young women, 400, and again, they still just didn't quite have enough. We got 200, we're 200 short. What else are we going to do? What else could we possibly do to make up this difference? Now it says the elders of the congregation are asking, what should we do for the rest of these wives, for these men? And then they said, there's a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh. Now Shiloh is where the tabernacle of God has been this whole time. That's where it's been. And it's really interesting. One of the commentaries I was reading points out the specific, how specific the directions are that they were given to get to Shiloh. Why did they have to give them such specific directions? Here's what it says. Then they said, in fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. Fairly specific directions. Why would that be? If the tabernacle of the Lord is there, they should know where it is because they're supposed to go there on a fairly regular basis. And they obviously have not been doing this. Do you know, I talked to you a little while back about, do you know the way home? The story I told about our dog being feeling like she was lost and as soon as she realized she was lost, she headed straight for home. Do you know where the tabernacle is? Do we come to God often enough that we know where home is? They didn't. They had forgot. They needed specific instructions how to get to Shiloh, where the tabernacle of God was. They should have known where that was. Do we know where it is? Do we know the way to God? Do we know how to communicate with God? Do we know how to listen to God? Or have we forgot because we've been distracted by the things around us? <clears throat> Go to Shiloh. Hide in the vineyards. Be careful, Hadassah. 
They have a vineyard. <laughs> Hide in the vineyards. And when the ladies come out to do their dance, which they normally do at that time, then it's so funny to me that that movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, does this, I, just, it's, I just think it's funny. I don't try it. <laughs> because I don't think it'll end well at all. But again, they do, and they go there, and then it says very specifically, if the fathers or the families come and ask, hey, what you, this isn't right, we can't do this, here's what you can tell them. Here's another loophole. Here's another loophole. And it says, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. So in other words, because they came, because, okay, because we encouraged them to go to Shiloh and hide in the vineyard and take them and kidnap them in a sense, that will release you of your oath because you didn't technically give them to them. That's a, a pretty good stretch, if you ask me. They were recommended to go there, and then they tell the people, don't worry, it, you, won't, you don't have to worry about the oath because technically... You didn't give them to them. They took them. <sighs> loophole. That's another loophole. How many times do we look for loopholes in the way that we're living because we don't like what we see or we don't think that God is taking care of us and so we're going to try to mechanize things and take things into our own control and do what we think is best. We make up our mind before we ask God. There's no loopholes in living for Christ. Judges. We've been going through this book of Judges for, it seems like, a long time. <clears throat> but we don't have to live based on this last verse. Verse 25 that says, In those days there was no king in Israel. In those days they didn't view God as king. There was no king in Israel. And everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if we base on Scripture what we think is right, then we might all see somewhat similar things of being right. But when you don't base it on Scripture of what's correct or what's right, your opinion, my opinion, the other person's opinion, what's right? What's truth? What's okay? What's not okay? Whatever's right in your eyes. Based on what? Based on whatever you think. We can't live our lives based on that. It's not going to work. It won't work. It's been proven that it doesn't work, yet in today's world, it appears that we're trying it again. A couple verses that I, more verses that I want to read. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 28 through 30. It says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
We're going through, we're, we've, been, we've been talking through judges. A lot of times in judges, there are heroes. There are people that do heroic things. We, talk, we think about the people that we've talked about and, and we've heard stories about year after year, time after time. Gideon, heroic. He didn't, he, he didn't think he was anybody, but God stepped in and used him. Um, <clears throat> lots of different ones that were heroic. We've been learning about men and women that have been heroic in battle. But to be truly heroic, this is not original with me, but to be truly heroic, we must go into battle each day in our home, in our job, in our church, in our society to make God's kingdom a reality. That's what it is to be truly heroic, is to do it right where you are, in your home, in your church body, in your job, in your society, in your community, wherever it might be, that's where the real heroic work is done. Yeah, it's cool to do these things, to read about things that happened back in Scripture and the the heroes that were there, but to really truly be heroic, it starts right where we are right now, right where you are right now. That's where it starts. Our weapons to be heroic are this. They're the morals, the standards, the truths, and the convictions that we receive from God's word. The morals, the truths, the standards, and the convictions that we learn right here in God's word. We can't do whatever seems right in our own eyes. We will have no morals, we will have no standards, we will have no convictions, we will have no weapons to fight. First John chapter two. <clears throat> Verses three through six. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Jesus came and he set the example for us to follow. We don't have to live based on what is right in our own eyes. We can live based on what Jesus taught us and how he taught us to live and the word that is inspired by God that we can take and we can live based on the truth. This is the truth. And I will keep saying that every week. This is the truth. Because there's a lot of things that seem to be true, but we don't know if they are or they're not. So as we wrap up Judges, what, do we, what have we learned? What can we take from Judges? And the first thing is we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because the people in Judges, the first one I very first started, the title was, how did we get, how did we get from the end of Joshua to the first chapter of Judges? The road to Judges, as, as Janet put it. How did we get there? How did they get there? They didn't keep their eyes on Jesus. They didn't wipe out everybody that was in the land that they were supposed to take over. They didn't take that. They didn't complete their responsibility. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The second one is to stay in the word. 
Teach it, read it, teach it to your kids. Read it all the time. Live it, walk it, teach it. The last one is to seek God's direction through prayer. Don't make up your mind what you're going to do before you have asked God what he would like you to do. It hopefully, as we learn to stay in the word, it hopefully will start to be the same thing. But if we're not, if we're distracted and we're trying to do our own thing, it will not always line up with what God wants. But continue to seek God through prayers. Continue to seek his direction through prayer. We underestimate prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing. Very powerful. I, I did have a song I was going to play. I think maybe I still will play it. It's morning for songs, and that's, that's fine. That's great. If you want to pull that up, Ryan, just, just as we are wrapping up here in Judges, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep him on Jesus. Keep him on Jesus. Stay in the word. Let's read the truth. Let's seek God's will. Let's seek God's direction for our lives, and let's do it through prayer. I've been, I've been saying, are we, willing, are we willing to stand up? Are we willing to stand up for what's right? And a way that we can stand up for what's right is through prayer. And that sounds very cliche. You've heard that a lot. You know, we, we, we can pray. We know we can pray. And sometimes we start to think, well, yeah, but what else can we do? Well, let's establish that first. Let's establish that we can pray first. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Judges that you gave us to learn from. And I thank you for the things that you have allowed us to learn through that. Lord, I pray that as we go about our week, you would be glorified. I pray that we can be a light for you wherever we go. I pray that we can have an excitement about serving you and about sharing your love with others. We love you this morning, and we thank you for your love for us. In your name we pray, amen.